I said it before and I'll say it again. That scene, that last scene. What does it mean? I'm the dude, you know? Get the fuck out of here. No, I cannot. That final scene starts now. Hello, we are back with another episode of That Final Scene. My name is Sophie and I'm back with the full gang, Ben and Simon. Yeah, we're back. We haven't recorded in a while. Yeah, exactly. I feel like I haven't seen you in forever. How have you been? Not too bad. Yeah, I mean, I was fine. I got vertigo for a while. Mm-hmm. That's the thing I didn't tell you. That was great fun. What happened? I went to the gym because, like, that's that's me now. And uh, like halfway through, I started getting really lightheaded, and then literally got home. I couldn't get out of bed for like twenty four hours. Why did you get vertigo I, from the gym? I have no idea. Basically, I went to A and E, and they were like, "Yeah, well, did you? These things just happen. What is it like?" Uh, it's like every room just spins. Literally, like I would try and get out of bed and walk to the living room. Wait, be, like, is this what you're telling rope. Ellie to get out of going to the gym? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's thought, not. If I say it on a podcast, then it's real. No, it's certainly not. It's certainly not. I was planning on putting together a little montage of me just uh, talking over the U2 track Vertigo, but then I didn't. I thought that was a little bit too much work. And it's not to do with the fact you flew on an airplane no, recently? No, nothing. No, I get that quite a lot when I jump on the treadmill. But you're it, not supposed it, to jump on a treadmill. You run on the treadmill. You jump on it. No, 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 no. As in, like, jump. As in, like, jump on a treadmill. And then I start walking and running. Okay. You have to jump because, like... Oh, you mean to get going on it? Yeah, exactly. That's what I meant. Sorry. Do you, like, okay. set it going really, really fast yeah, and then jump on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, know when, you know when people say, jump on a call? Yeah, yeah. They don't you mean jump on the treadmill. <laughs> yeah. I catch myself in that, but I try not to say that anymore because it's... Why? It's like corporate lingo. I started saying hop. Yeah. Makes it a little bit more whimsical, you yeah, know. Yeah, it's more gentle. It's more <laughs> gentle. But yeah, so mine, yeah, an action-packed two weeks since we recorded for me. I feel like we aligned because that's when I started going to the gym properly after we recorded yeah, the last it's, you know, as soon as I think it's the season. As soon as we started like getting into audio on a, on a medium that no one can actually see me, I thought I really <laughs> need to lose some weight. <laughs> Do you watch films in the gym? I think I have a, I don't know, I've got a clearly fat voice, you know. Um, no, I don't. No, I don't. I can't do that. I see, I see a lot of people who like watch movies and they watch episodes of TV shows mm. while they're on the treadmill stuff. I just, I can't do that. I can't oh, no. like concentrate on that. I have to just, I just listen to music and podcasts and just like switch off. Listen to ours because I'm, I'm a massive narcissist. So I just listen to our <laughs> podcasts all the time. I used to have this terrible habit of watching stuff on my phone when I used to commute to work. I was the worst kind of person back then. Mm. But <laughs> I feel like I'm doing much better because I stopped doing that. And I only reserve TV and like cinema time for that kind of. I, I don't, it just feels weird now. Do you read a book? I just listen to podcasts instead. Just stare oh. blankly at the person across the aisle. Like I think the equivalent is you know when you eat loads of sugar, right? Okay. Regularly, it makes you feel like crap. But because you're used to it, you don't quite feel how bad it makes you feel. And once you stop eating sugar, and then you have it like a few weeks later, a month later, you realize how bad it is for you, and you can't quite get back to that. Like biscuits don't quite taste the same anymore. What are you saying? Is it just me? Miss Purity now, and you're not yes, sugar. exactly. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying that small screens are bad for you. So mm-hmm. now I can't quite watch anything on like a mobile. So if we won't watch anything on a screen that's below seventy inches, you know, yeah, <laughs> everything, everything, so seven inches everything has to be widescreen. <laughs> Cinema aspect. Speaking of, uh, what have you guys been watching recently? I've watched quite a lot I feel like I've finally finished Stranger Things even though I saw every spoiler Ooh, possible because nice. me and my girlfriend I was talking to her about it I was like how have you avoided all these spoilers like she was like oh I don't know like any of them I'd seen basically the main spoiler for it which I, I, we could talk about it if we want it's to it's inevitable yeah but it's basically because I just follow lots of nerdy inst- like IGN within a couple of days we're mm-hmm. just posting about this character's dead and you're like oh for fuck's sake 
And so, yeah, my Instagram feed was just full of that. Um, finished the boys as well, which we could talk about. Uh, and started watching Halo. I got the I got Paramount, Paramount Plus. Plus. And I'm really, really underwhelmed by it. Yeah, they've made a, Paramount have made a TV series that I think it's been fully released in the States and here they're doing it like week by week. Some nice Irish representation in it. There's some Irish actors in there, which I love. Uh, But yeah, I mean, it's kind of like for a TV show that's based off a very exciting video game, it's kind of dull. It kind of looks like low rent sci-fi. Like it doesn't look like, even though they've probably pumped tons of money into it, Still kind of looks like Firefly. And I loved Firefly. Like, I thought Firefly. Firefly. Oh, dude, Firefly is the best show ever that only got one season. Uh, It's like a, it's a show from like 2000, early 2000s, directed by Joss Whedon. And it just got one season. And it's basically kind of like this sci-fi show about like a bunch of rebels, you know, kind of that kind of thing. But it is Mm. really good. And it only ever got one season. And so everybody's, the whole thing is like, bring back Firefly. But they'll never bring it back because it's perfect as it is. But yeah, it just kind of looks like that, you know, like early kind of naughty sci-fi where every kind of setting looks the same. And so, yeah, I've just been a little bit, yeah, underwhelmed. That's on the back of the game, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like the Halo, yeah, Halo games have been coming out for like, since the early 2000s. Yeah. I'm not surprised um, it's bad. As in, like, I, I feel like it's rare that games have translated well. Yeah, on the it's big, really Like Assassin's rare. Creed, Warcraft. Oh, like God, just... that Assassin's Creed. Me- uh, well, again, Irish representation. Love Michael Fassbender. <laughs> but Christ, that film was terrible. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was so pointless. Now, having said that, and I've... I. I'm, I do plan on watching it. Arcane, which is on Netflix, is oh, supposedly yeah, that, really yes, good, and that's, that's based true. off a video game as well. Um, My and, brother watched that. He was yeah, and I think people are starting to get better at it, you know, like trying to be as true. I think that's the problem with the Halo one. The Halo one's just not that true to the source material. Like, the main thing about the games is that you don't know what this guy looked like, and he wears a suit of armor the whole time. Within about 10 minutes of the first episode, he takes his helmet off, and you're like, oh, great, it's porn stash from Orange is the New Black. Like, it kind of, (laughs) like, it breaks that illusion that the video games have, like, spent so many years of building up of, like, this faceless super soldier. And it's like, oh, okay, so we we just don't care. I'm kind of forcing myself to watch it. <laughs> How have you got enough time to force yourself to watch a show you didn't like? Because I, I, like, I get into bed at night and I will just watch an episode. Like okay. that tends to be when I do a lot of my. Does that like, send you to sleep? Yeah, yeah, it kind of has. Yeah, it's a kind of shocking indictment for that TV show. Very quickly to go back to the boys. Yeah. I just want to apologize to the showrunners if they're listening for for what I said in the previous episodes because I feel About like what? because the finale like made up for the entire season. I thought the finale was great, but there was still some stuff that was really predictable. Like, predictable. oh yeah, but I feel like, like that's the, not it's not the end. It came across as a semi finale in a way. It feels like we've gotten to like a mid season finale yeah. rather than kind of finishing up because I don't know if I don't know. Again, it goes back to like how much longer can I watch? the show where the guy is the epitome of like American white supremacy sure. and it's just a little bit like oh okay so like he can kill someone in front of a crowd of people and we're cool with that now um but yeah I thought there was a lot of like there was a lot of the character arcs came nicely full circle and like Starlights was great and I'm Huey's Huey back. really redeemed yeah, himself exactly. yeah Simon's like I've never seen this for a while. Yeah, but you should watch it. Yeah, I, I think you'll enjoy it. It's it's good superhero. It's basically a thing where they go, you, superheroes you like, are dicks. Yeah, you know, you people like who Deadpool. are superpowered. You like Deadpool, so I think yeah. you're going to like the boys. I want to watch The Lost Boys. That's on my list to watch soon. That's about vampires. The vampire 80s film. We should have a thing, like what we're going to do around Halloween. Yeah. It would be nice to do yeah. like a If anyone of, has suggestions yeah. for like some good scary movies for us to watch. Mm-hmm. Donnie Darko. I think Donnie Darker is a good one to have on the list for Halloween. And yeah. Lost Boys is another good one. And then 
We've got like Alien has an anniversary coming up, doesn't it? Yes. So we could do Alien for that. Yeah. I love Stephen King. So we need to do like a Stephen King's Misery. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. Oh God. Oh Jesus. Every <laughs> time. Misery is one of my favorites. Oh God. Every time it's I watch right. Misery, I feel like my legs are going to break. It's just like, ah. <laughs> oh. I do It though. I do It part one and two. I'd be up for watching that as well. I think yeah. that'd be good. Yeah. Get some, uh, some Tim Curry in. Some Tim Curry action. Legends. Oh yeah. So the old one. Yeah. Not the. Oh the yeah. No, yeah. not the new one. No, I, like I have the, to watch the I old like one. The fir- I like It. The 2017 one. The, yeah. The new yeah. one with Bill Hader. With and... some of the kids from Stranger Things. Though. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. yeah which yeah, I thought yeah. was good. Cool. The main film I wanted to talk about is, well, I know I'm very late to the party because it actually came out a few months ago on the big screen, but now it's out on um, 4K DVD, digital, like whatever. It's called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Have you heard of Oh, the Nick Cage movie? Yeah, the Nick Cage movie. I haven't watched it yet, but I really want to. Okay, so I got a screener from Lionsgate and they were kind enough to give me one. So I wanted to kind of talk about it for for a second because I remember talking about Hashtag it. Hashtag spons, not spons. It's not sponsor, <laughs> but like I got the, yeah. Hello. <laughs> I remember talking about the film with Tim, comedian of cinema, and he was like, I want you to watch that film because I feel like you're going to see our friendship in that film. And I did. So shout out to Tim. Long story short, Nicholas Cage plays himself. Well, a version of himself because he's kind of creatively unfulfilled and he's going broke, which to be fair is kind of true or at least was true. So he accepts an, a $1 million offer to attend a birthday party of quote-unquote super fan of his who's played by Pedro Pascal. Love Pedro Pascal. Yeah. So, of course, he's not a super innocent, super fan. He has a reason. He's uh, inviting him over to his party. And the CIA employs Nick Cage to take down Pedro Pascal's character. The thing I love about the film is that, one, it doesn't take itself too seriously. If you go into that film trying to make it make sense, you're going to lose. You're going to have an awful time. So, like... It has a lot of meta references. I think you get a great highly highlight real version of like uh, Nick Cage's best career moments in a less than a two-hour film. And the chemistry between Cage and Pascal is just amazing. I love a bit of Nick Cage. I think I he love gets him. I think he gets I think he gets a bad rap. And actually recently in the last couple of years, he's done some really good stuff. Like mm-hmm. Mandy was great. Pig is Pig really was good. Amazing. Even in Kick-Ass, he's, he's like one of the best things about the first Kick-Ass movie is um, when he's Big Daddy. He's brilliant in it. Yeah, he had that rough patch where, <laughs> like most to. actors do, yes. every, you know, everybody yeah. has them. He's, what, he's National Treasure. Yeah, National Treasure kind of. He's polarizing, isn't he? He's like, sure. you know. My favorite thing about him, having read interviews with him and seen him like like watch clips of him on YouTube, he is kind of unapologetically just like, well, this is what I do. Like, you know, and he's talked about a lot he's about like it. providing for his family and stuff like that. It's like, well, yeah, of course I did like big budget movies because I got a load of money so I could put my kids through college. I saw someone posted about the Ghostwriter thing. Mm-hmm. I don't mind the first Ghostwriter. I don't think it's it's, I don't think it's that bad. I don't think it's terrible. And I think if you watch his whole filmography. And even people who hate him will probably go, oh, yeah, that's good though. Like Raising Arizona or something like that, you'd say, even though he's had some stinkers in there and some kind of weird yeah, he's stuff. Had, yeah, he's, he had to do a lot of B movies for whatever yeah. reason, but, you know, who cares? Like, I, yeah. would, I would have an issue with him if the movies were, you know, problematic or he chose them for a you know, particular reason. But, you know, like, just like any other person, he's just making some money. Uh, and the thing is, uh, to go quickly go back to the film, to what you just said, he's owning all of that. Like he's owning the meme culture around his legacy and his reputation. And, you know, it just, 
it, it's it's such a 2022 film again. It's just uh, very self-aware. Uh, so there's that. And then very quickly, I want to give a shout out to Better Call Saul. I know you guys haven't caught up yet. And I know Ben is bidding it very, very soon. I'm right? planning to, yeah. Yes. Cancelled in for Ben's bedtime. Yeah, for my bedtime little dean. <laughs> no, it's not, for, it's not for bedtime. It needs to have your full attention. <laughs> it must be watched in broad daylight, yeah. yeah. I've had a lot of people on Instagram reach out for a reaction on the podcast. This is gonna like this is happening and I would love for us to maybe do like a special episode, maybe a bonus one around the finale, maybe cool. like a shorter one. So yeah, as I said last time, I am just speechless with what Vince Gilligan has done with the show. I will, I promise, I will watch it. You won't be able to make it to the yeah, you won't be able to watch like four seasons in what, three weeks or something? And uh, well the last time I did that I was a student and I had a lot more time <laughs> on my hands. So I can't promise that. The one thing that I wanted to mention about the show is the cinematography and it's interesting because we never talk about cinematography when it comes to TV shows. Like you never mm-hmm. talk about like composition and lighting and camera work, but they, they've just, I, I don't know. I need to look up the cinematographer if it's the same one from Breaking Bad or if they've changed. It just, it's like I'm watching a Roger Dickens level of work. So yeah. Is that how we went to see? Yes, oh, yes, okay, we yeah. did. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. We went to see. I feel really intelligent now. Yes, you, yes, you got that right. Yeah, um, <laughs> we went to see Roger Dickens uh, a year ago, probably to yeah. see some of his. But okay, oh, I'm so glad you remember. I'm very proud of you, Simon. <laughs> Just FYI, in this episode, we're gonna talk about the final scene of Mummy by Xavier Dolan, which I'm quite excited about. But before we do that. We want to spend some time and give some love to Night on Earth by Jim Jarmusch, which came in as a request from a friend. Yeah, so this guy, hi Sam, that me and Ben used to work <laughs> this with. This guy. Called Sam. I <laughs> uh, heard we were doing this podcast and sent in his own review of it. Um, should we play it? Yeah. Hey, that final scene podcast. I'm getting in touch because I recommended a film to Simon like ages ago. And quite typically, I gather he still hasn't got around to watching it. I've watched it now. Uh, So I thought I'd broaden the recommendation to the three of you, if you haven't seen it already, of course, which is very possible as it's a bit of a hidden gem. Anyway, the film is Night on Earth. It's from 1991. It's written and directed by American Jim Jarmusch, uh, who wrote the screenplay in just a few days, developing characters for actors he wanted to work with and set them in their home cities. I stumbled across it late at night on TV, mainly because it opens with my crush of that era, Winona Ryder. Shit. Hey, you need a cab lady? Yeah, I guess I do. Yeah, I'm right here. It's been on my top three films ever since. And here are three reasons it's so great. Firstly, the concept. It's five independent short stories of taxi journeys at the same time in different cities around the world. LA, New York, Paris, Rome and Helsinki. They're like five long single scenes in real time. Anyway, it's definitely interesting for this podcast because it's essentially five different final scenes all in one film. Uh, secondly, the characters and dialogue. It's an awesome cast. Newbie Renona Ryder, like I said, alongside Hollywood legend Gina Rowlands, Giancarlo Esposito, way before Breaking Bad's Fried Chicken. Look, Angela, just, just calm down! Don't tell me to calm down! Rosie Perez is on great form. Beatrice Dahl of Betty Blue fame. I'm going to music. I'm going to music. 
And best of all, it introduced me to the hilarious Roberta Benigni. He's not. We're going to roast your friend. Went on to do one of the best Oscar winning speeches of all time. The life is beautiful. This is a terrible mistake because I used up all my English. <laughs> Third and finally, Jamush is also a musician. And I think that really is evident in the pace, the rhythm, the mood, the unique atmosphere throughout, and particularly thanks to the score from Tom Waits. The spirit of each city is perfectly captured with so many themes running through the five storylines. Personal passions, goals and dreams, family, friendship, prejudices, loss, heartbreak and first love. It's hilarious and moving storytelling for those intimate, transient interactions of a taxi journey. It's beautiful, relatable, simplicity. I hope you enjoy it as much as I have over the years. I was a boy. His voice is sound doesn't have a great voice it's very Tim Barton yeah it is that's what I thought it's very like yeah very mid 90s <laughs> Edward Cezanne's vibes thanks for that Sam that was wicked but some of that film disturbed Ben quite deeply yeah I mean <laughs> so like right listen his Oscar speech may have been great but spending 15 to 20 minutes watching a man pretty graphically disturb what to describe what it's like to shag a pumpkin and then shag a sheep and then shag a sister-in-law <laughs> subsequently killing a priest in the back. <laughs> giving the poor man a heart attack kind of yeah wasn't my cup of tea uh, I did enjoy some of it I have to say you know, like and it's an interesting one because uh, almost like talking about a TV show, you can break the film down into five individual segments, you know, and talk about the ones that you like and didn't like. Um, I really liked the New York one. I thought that was really good with yeah, um, Giancarlo Esposito. And I can't remember the name of the, the German actor who plays Helmut. Helmut. But I thought that was brilliant. Like that was the one that felt like the most kind of honest because it was a genuinely two people from completely different places and not understanding. And actually from a final scene element, actually, when Helmut drives off, and is driving through and he drives away and he takes off his red nose. You kind of, it, he doesn't say anything, but you get this real sense of what it must be like to be an immigrant who's just arrived in New York, who's now driving a taxi, who doesn't know where anything is and doesn't actually speak the language. And it's quite like a, like I've only ever been to New York as a tourist, never even tr- trying to live there, be insane. And you just kind of see it in just his, in his facial expressions of driving around the city and the kind of fear and like uncertainty in his face. And I really, I did really enjoy that. I enjoyed the French one as well. I enjoyed the one in the one in Paris. I know um, I can't remember what I've seen the actor in. I've seen him in a in a couple of different things. Betty Blue, that's yeah, that was your standout. Um, but yeah, I mean the, the Winona Ryder one. I did. I found her quite overacted. Yeah, was I was like, googling as well. She was only she would have only been like nineteen it, or twenty. Yeah, it must have been one of her first yeah. roles. As we were listening to the clip, as I, as I quite rightly pointed out, you know, if I was a taxi driver in my twenties and someone offered me the chance to be a big movie star, damn fucking right I'd say yes. Like, <laughs> not a fucking chance I'm turning that down. That doesn't make a good film though, Ben. Yeah, it's it's a film that's broken into five parts. At least that one can have a happy ending. One of them, <laughs> a priest dies in one of them. At least let somebody have a happy ending. Christ, let Winona be an actress. Were you sad Turn- when the priest died? I wasn't sad when the priest died because it was just a, an entirely strange encounter. I was just, I was almost happy it was over. I was like, honestly, thank God he's dead because if he had to put up with that man for another 10 minutes, he'd probably have jumped out the bloody window. 
Like, oh God. But as Sam pointed out, one of the best things in it is the music. Like the music in it is fantastic. Yeah, I agree. It, you know, I mean, to go back uh, to, the, to their own one. You're going to use the word problematic. No, there's nothing problematic about the film because it's Jim Jarmusch. I mean, he's a godfather of indie filmmaking. There's nothing to, yeah, criticize on that from. But like, to go back to the Rome one, it has that kind of super extroverted energy that it's quite toxic at the same time. Like, I couldn't quite, it was intolerable. He brings that kind of brand energy that I'm not here for and I just remember like waiting for it to end I think what's interesting you're tired of it because there's nothing there beyond just some like surface laughs really yeah there's nothing there's nothing to like connect you to that character that's not I find it quite surreal I'd say well I think the thing is surreal about like a conversation with a cab driver well I think I think and we might talk about this when we talk about mommy later in the episode but I I I think the thing that Jeremy does well on it is that European cinema and kind of that kind of like French Italian cinema always does feel a little bit kind of like exaggerated and stuff like that. And you definitely feel that in Mommy with the kind of the French Canadian element of like, there's a lot of exaggeration and just in the language and stuff like that. I think that definitely does it right. As you say so, and I think it's quite a surreal thing and he, he balances that quite well. Like they do feel like French and Italian films. Like they got, they almost like could have been directed by a French filmmaker or an Italian filmmaker, but yeah, as as you say, Sophie, there was nothing, even in surrealist comedy and stuff like that, it just feels like surface laughs. Like it doesn't feel like there's anything kind of deeper there. I don't know. That was from from my take anyway. For me, one of the most disappointing aspects of the film was that there was nothing especially intrinsic to the story setting. The L.A. story wasn't an L.A. story. Like the Helsinki story wasn't, you couldn't tell, there was nothing, you know, Finnish about it in a way. So that to me felt like a missed opportunity. To me, it looks like he didn't have any grand point to make with that film. It was more like, I want to visit those places and I want to make a movie with my friends. <laughs> yeah. Kind of, it's but like, he, it was I, like I, you I were wanna... dropping in on conversations, I thought. You were dropping in on these sure. fun conversations in a cab. That was it. It wasn't any deeper than that. Yeah, that was it. So I don't want to call it a home movie, but it was very close to that. Mm. A what movie? Home movie. What like do you it, mean? It, as, as in, like, had that kind of amateur feel. As in, like, ah, you're doing it for right. the sake of having fun and, like, yeah, to your point, get that kind of insight into these conversations that are temporary, right? That, like, those relationships that you have, you develop with a cab driver are temporary, but sometimes essential and they, mark, they could mark your life in a way. Like if Winona's character had said yes, it would have marked your life uh, significantly. But um, yeah, I thought that expansion of scope internationally didn't really add. Like the difference between movies and TV and the things that keep you enthralled for a film is like an overarching story. And it is an interesting look at, you know, keeping, because I, 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 weirdly i kind of watched it in segments so like i what i was like watching it throughout the day and stuff like that so watching different segments at different times when i had a chance so i almost watched it like a tv show but i wonder it, it probably would have been a different experience if i watched it from start to finish in one sitting like would i have struggled to get to the end because there isn't this kind of overarching nar- narrative that i'm building up to some form of climax and it is just you know five different conversations in a taxi cab but actually i probably enjoyed it more because i watched it in like conversation by conversation, I watched it like watching a TV show and just saw it as a, as an anthology, the right word, probably, probably not, but like. It's true. 
five, yeah, you know, five just individual segments that are 20, 15 minutes long, like a, like a short film almost. Um, and yeah, I'd be interested. I don't know. Did you guys watch it as like continually? Yeah, I watched it as one yeah. film. Yeah, same. Okay. And how did you find that? Like going from start to finish? I really enjoyed the rhythm of the story switching up every 15, 20 yeah, minutes. Yeah, I think it's about 15. Yeah. They're only about 15, 20 I watched minutes a series long. of films recently where they're just far too long and they grind on for hours. This right. film, you had this refreshing change of tone every, well, five times throughout the whole film, which I really enjoyed. I did think culturally, like the countries did come across. There was a certain New Yorkness to the way they were talking, the speed of it, the energy of it. Very different to the Italian Which was us. Rhythm. Exactly. What do you mean? He wasn't... He... It, it sounded like he was on steroids. It sounded like he was on speed, let alone yeah. steroids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I quite enjoyed it. What I'm going to say, because I want to, I mean, I agree with Ben. Like, I love the the soundtrack. I, I love the cinematography, like, to your point, Simon. I think it was, like, the rhythm worked very well. So it was very pleasant to watch in a way. And some of the performances are great, you know. Most of them. I was, like, yeah. everyone, I think, with the exception of Winona, <laughs> I, yeah. Respond to the brief. Uh, what I, what I am going to say is that looking back at you know James' filmography, for me the film's biggest significance is perhaps that kind of signified, it kind of brought like a conclusion to that filmmaking period of his that began with Stranger Than Paradise, and from that film onward he went on to make some incredible works like Dead Man, Only Lovers Left Alive, uh, Ghost Dog. Uh, Patterson, so like a lot of gold. So I think it has a place in his essential works. Um, yeah, I watched Patterson off the back of this. Yeah, I did. didn't love it. That's okay. <laughs> but I it's like okay. Broken Flowers. Yeah. Oh, Broken great. Flowers as well. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed yeah. that. Have you seen Broken Flowers, Ben? No, I've not seen it. It's good. I'll check it out though. Okay, uh, guys, I think it's time. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be back with Mummy. Oh, look, a message from our sponsor. GI Jane Two. Can't wait to see it. Ah, yo, hold my poodle. Hey, yo, what's up? Y'all got a problem? Y'all want some of this? Without much further ado, here we go again. Hey guys, just before we get into the final scene, we wanted to give you a quick heads up that we will be discussing topics of mental health, violence, and suicide. So please be kind to yourself. And if you're not feeling 100% today, maybe listen to that segment some other time. Thank you. We are back with 2014's Mummy by Xavier. Xavier? Uh, does any of you Xavier. speak French? Does any of you speak French? I don't know. No, no, I, I don't. I did French in school, but I Xavier. Uh, so the reason we picked this film is because I posted its final scene on TikTok a couple of weeks ago. It has one of the best uses of music that I remember in a final scene, so I thought I'd share it. And for you listening, I'm now on TikTok. So yeah, if you want to follow me, you can do that. Anyway, the video went, as the young people say these days, viral. <laughs> as, as, as the cool as the kids youngsters say. say these days. Uh, as we speak, the video has almost 900,000 views, which is bonkers. I got <laughs> 4,000 followers out of Damn. that. It's insane. So anyway. All 4,000 better be listening to this bloody podcast. That's that's the, sure. We did see a spike in downloads and I know a lot of you out there have been waiting for that um, episode. So hi, we're here. The video got a lot of love from all kinds of people. I'm going to go as far as to say I wouldn't be surprised if the film saw a slight spike in digital sales because of that video, because we're talking almost 1 million views. Anyway, uh, we got a voice note as well from a lovely listener. Hi, guys. 
I'm really looking forward to the review of Mummy. I love it, and it's one of my favorites of all time. And it's really underrated, and I'm really, I really appreciate that you talk about it because I think that it's a film necessary to watch, and I would like to everyone to to watch it and give it a try. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. No taken. Request taken. We're doing this. Actioned. <laughs> Executed. <laughs> so the film is the fifth feature from the Quebec-born director, which won the Jury Award in 2014 in the Cannes Film Festival as well. That fact alone, I feel like, you know, it makes it have much more impact. Dolan actually was 25 when he made the film, and he already had four feature films under his radar. So this guy's putting in the work. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. I do feel a bit inadequate. I know, I know. Yeah. It's, yeah. Thanks, Xavier. <laughs> I'm going to intentionally get your name wrong now for making me feel inadequate. In any case, uh, I will take a stab at summing up the plot of the film so we can talk about the ending. Needless to say, spoilers ahead. So, Mummy set in Quebec in an imaginary near future. The future is one that contains the S-14 legislation, which enables parents to commit their usually troubled kids when they turn 16 to public institutions. The film kicks off with Steve, a deeply problematic, as Simon likes me to say, <laughs> teenager to say the least, that has just been thrown out of a special school for setting fire to the cafeteria and causing burn injuries to fellow students. Now his mother, a 40-something working-class single mother, Diane, or Dee, claims to be able to look after and even homeschool Steve until he turns 16 and is eligible for that grim option of state-sponsored residential care. Steve is hyperactive, he's loud, he's abusive, he has ADHD, he has serious boundary issues. His mother, I would say, is not all that different, and as soon as Steve is released into his mother's care, it's where the film explodes into full mania and anarchy. Yet, somewhere into the first 35 to 40 minutes, a new central character comes in. Steve and Dee make friends with their next-door neighbor, Kyla, a teacher who suffered a nervous breakdown two years before, the chief symptom of which is stammering. She offers to tutor Steve and somehow, certainly not without a fight, manages to soften him and also forms a friendship with Dee. Unfortunately, the peace doesn't last for long with the threat of legal proceedings over Steve's injuring of a child in his former institution looming. His relationship with his mother becomes once again unstable. And this all comes to a boil with a suicide attempt on Steve's part, which leads to Diane eventually giving in and committing him to a state institution. In the final scene of the film, we see Steve break free from the guards and jump out of a window. Wait what a minute, that's not correct. What? That's the final scene. You never see him jump out the window. You never see him jump out the window. Well, yeah. he, he, okay, he, it's implied. He, he, he runs towards the window with the implication that he's going to jump out of it. Yeah, but you don't know. With feet don't fail me now, I thought take whole, me to the I finish line. I discussion yeah. was going to be around what, what actually happened when that, it goes that's black. What, that's what we're going to talk about. Okay. I mean, yeah, we, yeah, but based on what I've What, read, do you think he just hits the window and just hits it like a brick wall and bounces yeah, back? Yeah, or... I mean, a lot of the times in that film, it's like a, a diversion, isn't there? You think something's going to happen and then it goes the other way. So it's not... Oh, I don't think so. I think this is... We can is talk the, about it, I but think, he's ex- yeah. escaped. Like he tries to commit suicide in the in the shop and he fails. But I think this is the finish line. And I think the fact that just before this, he's off the phone with mm. Di telling her, you know, yeah, how apologetic he is. And- in terms of like first reaction, because I think what you just said is interesting. 
what did you think of the ending in terms of, did you find it shocking? What was your reaction going into that final scene? It's really sad. Yeah, I thought it was, combined with the fact that we we find out just before we see this, like the reason she doesn't answer the the phone to him is that Kyle has just come over to tell her that she's moving to Toronto. So actually for Di, it's like a, you don't see her reaction to what's happened to Steve, but her, do you know what? Her performance when she is holding back tears looking across the street is like, brilliant like it's incredible like you see you know the most impactful films when you see points in your life you're like fuck i've I've done that like i've been that part you know when you're trying to really hold something in and like her blowing at her cheeks and puffing at her cheeks and stuff like that and it's just like gut-wrenchingly painful did you expect it to take that kind of sad hopeless turn because for me the ending is very hopeless Mm. Yeah. So the, at the beginning of the film, you know that this law's been enacted and you know that this kid, Steve, he's obviously got terrible ADHD problems, yeah. attachment problems, and he's becoming more and more of a loose cannon. So you know throughout the film, the tension's building, like, is she or isn't she going to, well, you know, do this? And the thing, one of the things that, you know, you know, you hear a line in a film and you think that's going to be important. One of the first things that's said to her when she's going to check him out from the school, she's having the talk with the secretary where she informs her about you know this, this new law coming in and she says to her loving people doesn't save them mm-hmm. and that's the whole premise of pretty much the whole premise of it is her trying to save him by just loving him to the best ability that she can and eventually it just becomes you know although way. might it have done because i read it as kyla thinks in, in that last conversation between kyla and diane that kyla doesn't approve of her committing him to the institution. No. And actually it leads to potentially his death. So maybe Kyla was right and it was wrong of her to give in and not carry on loving him Mm. in the home. At that point it's when we realise Diane puts herself first because I have the quote in front of me from that conversation which I thought it was quite important. She says, I sent him there because I have hope. I'm full of hope, okay? This world doesn't have tons of hope, but I like to think that it's full of hopeful people hoping all day long. Better off that way because us hopeful people can change things. Hopeful world with hopeless people, that won't get us far. I did what I did so that way there is hope. So I win all the way. It's a win-win for everybody. So for her, it was the prospect of hope, of a happy life, of a future that led her to have Steve institutionalized and it is as though she realizes that this is the way to go for her for her to have a normal life right because she doesn't pick up the phone she disengages she lets him disintegrate in like in the institution she refuses like it's literally no contact right at that point onward what she does and she calls it a win it's a win-win for me that's really like the pivotal point of her making I didn't read it like that because I I didn't think there'd been that much passage of time since him going into the psychiatric hospital and that scene yeah he was two weeks into I just that's just two weeks it's probably like I read that as like an initial period of like let him settle in you're not allowed to contact him whatever it wasn't like she'd written him out of her life and she'd moved on there is a lot of intention there is a lot of intention in the scene where she doesn't pick up the phone there's a reason that scene is there Ah, but I, I just thought she was... And what's the reason it, for she, not engaging with him and like over the phone? But she didn't Why ignore, cut off contact like that? The way that was shot, I didn't think that she was ignoring the phone on purpose. I thought she, she just was. missed it, yeah, because she's, out, she she's outside, it. yeah. She's like in a different room. The, fo- the shot is like the phone's on a glass table like this. And then the, the door to what she calls the shed is closed. And then she's having that loud conversation with Kyla. But like I read it as just the phone's ringing and she's just trying to 
keep herself busy with this ridiculous conversation with Kyla? For me, Dread, he's not a priority. Ah, Otherwise, like, the what's, the, what's the purpose of that scene? I, I think that when she discovers that he's called, she'll be absolutely gutted she didn't answer the phone. Yeah. But she expects that call. I mean, obviously she knows that he has access to, like, yeah, like he's in jail. But like, she's like all over the shop. She's a bit mad. She's she's losing the plot and she's missed this important call. But I don't think it was intentional. That's, I'm not sure. I saw it very differently. For me, it says that the, her choice is very intentional. And to I me, think, that seems like that kind of redemption narrative. No, I, did, I, I think that's two different things, though. I kind of agree with you both, but I think in two different ways. I think her language of the win-win shows the kind of selfish nature of her decision that putting him in there is for her. But I also don't think, I also agree with Simon in that, I don't think she would have ignored that phone call. Yeah, that quote, when you read that back then, that to me that's her convincing herself that what she's done is the right thing, but she feels terrible about it because she's still his mum and she keeps throughout the film reminding him that no matter what he does, she'll always love him. I think she's hating the fact she's made this decision, but she just can't cope with it any longer. She's bro- she, I mean, in the final conversation with Carla, she is broken. Like, she just feels like... She's like almost, almost so hyper, up. she can't even speak normally. She's like trying to pretend that her life is fine, but clearly... Yeah, exactly. She yeah, can't. pretending it's fine when it's not. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like the Inception ending, right? You know, you can actually mm. take a couple of different things. But because we don't actually see him jump out the window, we just... Mm. We're, it's kind of implied with the with the song. And sure. we, we, can, we can probably talk about the soundtrack and stuff like that. You can have different interpretations to it of... Maybe he doesn't, maybe he does. And then what is Dai's reaction going to be? I thought it kind of prophesied his fate in mm-hmm. a way. Yeah. It, 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 because it does feel like the cutoff point is intentional from Dolan, right? Like there's a reason the ending is up in the air because mm. depends on maybe on the state of mind that you have watching that film as well. I mean, if you're feeling hopeful or hopeless, right? So what happens is we see Steve free himself from a straitjacket and jump through the window and I've, people in the comments in the uh, TikTok video went on like a crazy spiral, like Reddit rabbit hole in a way where they were like, it was the second floor. It was the third floor. It was the fourth <laughs> floor. Because if it was the second floor, probably he wouldn't die. It's the ground floor. There was, <laughs> it breaks there, out like the incredible Yeah, hole. there was someone in the comments that were like, it's the second floor because we are surrounded by forests and you can clearly see the sunset. So, wow. <laughs> so like, it was super elaborate. So, I mean, I'm not going to go yeah, down that route. That's a deep dive. That's a deep dive. But... To go back to the to the soundtrack, you have the Born to Die, uh, Balanda de Rey song dropping out of nowhere. So what I got out of that ending is that there is no promise of happiness and future that is kind of alluded by in that die quote earlier, right? It's kind yeah. of... The thing is, two things happen. He either makes a run... Right, and he's trying to escape, and he survives, and he either gets called by guards. And what's the best case scenario of that? He gets more drugs, he gets more sedated, he gets excluded from the society. Like it's all gonna go downhill in that way, or he dies. Or option number three, yes, the sequel is a revenge horror. Oh. Right? Right, so. <laughs> With his bionic leg, yeah. And it's called Daddy now because he refers the- to himself as Daddy and he's going to kill his mommy. In the scene that you're talking about where he's running towards the window and the Lana Del Rey track's playing, the lyrics are, feet don't fail me now, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. And it's like, to me, I read that as, or heard that as, that's what he's saying to himself. He's like, yes. let me kill myself. 100%, that's yeah. what he wants to do. I think so. And I think if, if you look at the songs used throughout the film, there's a... Uh, very intentional use of music rather than dialogue. Like sure. the opening scene is 
White Flag. I mean, we love a bit of, love a bit of Dido, and White Flag, you know, plays when Di is, you know, pulling herself together, pulling her lives together, saying, "I'm not going to give up, Steve." You know, it's going to work out with Steve, and then the bit in the middle, you know, Wonderwall. Today's going to be the day where I throw it back to you. The screen gets bigger, which is, I think, one of my favorite things. In the I love film, that bit when that, he opens the screen. Yeah, in his hand. the whole film is shot in. Cool. Was it one one? And then he pulls the screen open and that for a whole scene of just this hopeful scene with gone. the three of them and the weight is off his shoulders and he's truly happy and the song reader reflects it. So I think actually you probably can make the assumption, as you say, it's feet they'll fail me now, you know, it, yeah. no, let me do it's, this. It's, true. Like, Dolan, it's really intentional I mean, Do- use of music. Dolan has said that, and this is why I know, Simon, you have thoughts about the soundtrack and the reason sometimes like the song choice is kind of debatable, but he has said that the songs are not chosen by him as a director, by by the characters. So at the beginning of the film, I was like, what are these tunes? It's really trashy soundtrack. It's really cheesy. <laughs> and then once I learned it was about the mixtape that his dad had given him from the road trip they did in California years ago. And, and there's this CD you see him sort of treasuring. I took that to mean that probably most of the tunes that you're hearing in the film are from that CD. And then that made loads of sense. And it's like mm. this childhood mix CD that's like imprinted on his mind and it's become the soundtrack to his life. And then that Lana Del Rey one in my head was the last track on that CD. Yeah, it's where the album ends. Yeah, and almost. that's why like Eiffel 65's in it, Dido, Counting Crows, like all of these, just this smorgasbord of random pop from over the years. And then once I found out it was from his dad, it made way more sense. Mm. And yeah, as you say, chosen by the character. It's, it's yeah. literally, it, that's why the whole, I think that combined with the, handheld camera one-to-one aspect ratio gives you this slice of life feeling a little sure. bit not a documentary but it just feels more like a home movie intimate. like you said before intimate intimate yeah intimate and then you have those brilliant moments where it opens up and becomes more expansive and more like you can breathe Cinematic, again yeah. i think it was really effective and really creatively done i think that's my favorite scene in the film that wonderwall scene i think it's like <laughs> it's you measure the screen with a tape measure because like is that portrait or is that square in a in a difficult film to watch it's this really hopeful scene and actually do you know what i think i don't know if we want to talk about this or not but i think the what makes the actual ending even more heartbreaking is that we get a false ending in the montage of him getting into school him getting his life together him getting married like that this beautiful scene of you're like fucking hell yes steve gets his life together and like this is just what you want because you're rooting for him of like you know you know it's not your fault you know you know matt damon goodwill hunting like it's not your fault type thing and want you know really wanting the best for him and then it just cuts back to like it's a really direct it's a really abrupt cut as well like it just cuts to black and it's back in the car and she's like i need to go to the toilet let's pull over here and then there's that realization in his eyes as they're coming towards the car it's just like yeah it's painful to watch because as you say it's like what you could have won. That's why the ending works, because I feel like when you take the first intro card that introduces the S14 legislation, which, which I mean, you can tell he wants to make a sociopolitical argument with that film because he starts with that. And then he ends with um, Steve's fate, which is not going to be a good one regardless of the outcome. It shows that at the end of the day, there is no hopeful future for people like like I think this people are representative of people like working class 
live in a marginal space in the in the context of She's mental vulnerable. yeah mental health traditional family dynamics she's a single mother class as well so th- so it is very pessimistic right and i think dolan is a bit like that but i feel like it's more about the bigger issue that he wants to touch on which probably isn't he didn't do it in that the most impactful way, but I feel he wants to address that as well. Yeah, I didn't feel like it was like overly political though. I, I thought it was a great piece of work yeah. without the politics. I know we kind of touched on this, but the debate in terms of do we think he killed himself or he didn't kill himself? What are your thoughts on that? Having having not delved into whether I can see the sunset or the tips of the trees, <laughs> uh, no offense to the people on the internet. I would I, I I would say my conclusion is that he has killed himself, and I think it's. The, you know, the lyrics of the song speak to it, especially considering that false ending as well. It's the polar opposites of that. And I think, as you say, there's definitely a heartbreaking scene possibly to follow when Di gets that phone call, but that's not something we we get to see. I think the answer in that, I mean, I don't know if there's truly an answer, but in terms of trying to explore the different scenarios is going back to his motivations because you would have a different motivation for killing yourself or making a run out of it. If anything, if you want to escape, it means you want to escape because you want to live your life. So it's like a pursuit of freedom in a way. While suicide is like, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. This is over for me. I don't want to give myself another chance into redemption or like... uh, Up until that point, you know, with Kyle as well into the picture, we we started to see him kind of, you know, getting more soft, like a bit more empathetic, maybe it's a strong word, but... A bit more like, I don't, know, I don't know what's the word because I don't want to be like normal. normal well, I think the, the, the phone message he leaves his mum is, is yes. kind of goes with what you're saying. Yeah. You know, he, he leaves this essentially an apology message where yeah. he does, ha- he's developed some empathy. He's like, I'm sorry for all this, the hurt That's I caused true. you and stuff. So for that reason, perhaps we should think that he did commit suicide because that, was, he, that was his suicide note. Out of guilt. That's a goodbye, yeah. Yeah, guilt. And if he commits suicide, he'll stop hurting his mum. She'll be able to be happier. And then if you combine that with what you were saying earlier about the point the director was trying to make, then maybe that is the message he wants to send. Like, this is what happens if you marginalise people with mental health problems and there's no support structure and they get shoved in institutions, they end up killing themselves. Exactly. That was one of my questions for you guys as well. Because in the beginning of the film where he's in that special needs school, I think it's that kind of school, he doesn't make a run for, like, he, he doesn't make a run, he's, just there he's just making the most out of like the the situation but he doesn't commit suicide so something happens throughout the film which is what we are witnessing like his relationship with his mom and kyla that urges him to do whatever he's he's doing in the end so this is why i think yeah simon you bring a really good point like what changed him also medication is the fact medication yeah absolutely yeah. So he's pretty numb. He's making more colder, more calculated decisions under, you know, the medication's pretty calmed down. He says, he says yeah. in that message to his mum how high he is, how if she could see his face now, she'd be like laughing. But don't forget as well, this when he goes in there and assuming there has been no contact for him, when he's being dragged out of the car, it's the greatest betrayal, not from just his mum, but from Kyla as 100%. well. It's not just his mum, but this other woman who's come into his life, who's helping him get his life together is then just sitting there and, and letting this happen to him. In that scene, you see Di saying, no, 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 I, I take him back. Change my mind. Change my mind. Yeah. Change my mind. Yeah. And as you say, he's making these colder decisions, but actually, also assuming the, the, he hasn't had any contact, it's back. It's off the back of this massive betrayal of, you know, Steve recognises that he is 
yeah, he's apologizing to his mum. He recognizes that he's trouble and stuff like that. But he was getting his life together and he thought he was. And the lashing out at the bar and, and other things like that. And then the bar scene's great. The, yeah. The way they ramp up the tension. Mm. So he's doing karaoke and then there's these people like making fun of him. him, calling him all sorts of like homophobic names. And then as well as that, which is obviously annoying him, he can then see his mum and the potential lawyer that might help him kind of getting close and he hates that. And the whole situation just keeps heating up and heating up until he snaps. What annoyed me in that scene is that the mum is so engrossed in the lawyer, she probably doesn't notice all the goading that's, that's going on. So she probably just thinks he's overreacted. Well, even, so. uh, and, and going back to what you said, Sophie, about the kind of the, the I win nature, Mm. what she says to Steve before he runs away and disappears that night after the bar fight. It's like, why? It's it's all about her. Mm-hmm. It's like, why can't it? Like, why can't I have an, like, we're trying to have a normal life and then you do this and blah, blah, blah. And I can't have a normal life because of you. And, you know. I did feel for her then because she's at the end of her tether. Even the lawyer guy was like trying to give some perspective on it, even though his motives were probably a bit dodge. But he was saying how your mum's given everything. She's given you her whole life. You know, everything she's doing, it's for you. And you could see why she was like, I want something for myself. Yeah. I've got a life. I think this is what the director does quite well, even though ultimately Diane chooses herself in a way, and chooses her life for the time being. And, 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 but is she this, though? I don't know if it's at a, this present She moment, might be just trying does. to do what's best for her son. Like you just don't, it's not, it wasn't clear to me that she was doing it just for her. I don't know, her. no, I'm seeing a lot of, you know, I agree with Ben, I'm seeing a lot of selfishness in her throughout the film. It's not, it's not she's not like mother of the year, for sure. Like she's, <laughs> I, yeah. I don't think she's ever set out to be. I don't think they're trying to, he's and, trying to paint her as that. But exactly, uh, that's what I was going to say. I do think that's, Dolan's intention. He doesn't try to demonize Diane. No, not at all. And I think that's what's done very well. Sometimes you have to put yourself first, even if it means you're someone's mom. Because, because you, you can't take it anymore. You are at this yeah. critical, like... She would end up this, like him. She would end up suicidal. Yeah, yeah she was, 100%. Yeah. So I'm not... like This isn't about who's right, who made the right choice. It's a fucked up situation, period. But sometimes you reach the, a point of no return where you are so traumatized by what you've experienced where you're like, I need a fucking break. And the fact that I'm a mom shouldn't, you know, come with a stain, right? So it's mm. it's very complicated in that sense. So the final scene to me implies that actually Steve is very much aware of all of that. And I think deep down, to go back to that phone call, he, he thinks he's a burden to her. And the fact that she made the decision to, you know, get him institutionalized kind of got to him and he feels a lot of guilt. Because what you mentioned, Simon, earlier before we started recording in terms of how it can get a bit incesty. There's like husband and wife, brother and sister, best friends, prince and queen, they're everything well, so one, to There's a bit where he kisses her on the lips. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's interesting because he does it towards the start of the film as well, but he puts his hand over her mouth, which is what the, the poster of the movie is as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's the relationship yeah. with Kyla as well, I think that's just, de- that just the is there to demonstrate um, the, like you say, the boundary issues Agreed. and the attachment yeah. stuff that he's troubled by. Yeah, 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 yeah. One other thing that I read about Dolan is that he actually used his own experience because he was sent to boarding school by his mother when he was young. So I feel like he, you can see a bit of autobiographical... He's quite tender to Steve, even though he's a very hard character to like, let's be yes. honest. And I feel like in the end, there is, it's almost like he's admirable to him. 
that kind of pursuit of freedom in the end, whatever that may be. Yeah, I mean, his actions throughout the film are at, like horrible and at points like disgusting. And the taxi driver seems awful. He somehow builds his car, and actually, it's down to the actor as well. Like the, sure. the guy who plays Steve is fantastic, and I think it comes down to stuff like the Wonder Wall scene, where you see that kind of this tormented Optimism. soul who isn't in control of his emotions just these moments of pure joy as well that like he's not only bringing to himself, but like you see how much joy Di and Kyla get out of him as well of being like, you know, being able to be around him and like, you know, having him as a son and a friend and stuff like that. But yeah, he still does things that are like, even in the, in the opening scene or not the opening scene, but you know, the start when they first live together and he's like choking her, she hits him with a photograph because he's like, I, I thought you'd lock yourself in the closet. It's like, I thought you were going to kill me. I genuinely thought I was going to die. Yeah, it's awful. And it's it like there's yeah, and as you say, the taxi driver scene, like it's quite like visceral. Like he's very mm-hmm. like his He spits on the windscreen. Yeah, and, like his yeah. his his aggression like you kind of you feel that aggression, like it's you know, you kind of feel like he's been let loose, like he has seen red. And I think that's what that actor does really well is you kind of see clearly the points where you see that Steve has been taken over by this seeing red almost and like he's not that person that we know can have this really promising future that we believe he can have and going to Juilliard and getting married and and these different things but I also was thinking about when Diane the mum has served the papers saying you're going to have to pay 250,000 quid to the kid that got the burns from the fire in the school that Steve started right at the beginning of the film Mm. and that's where it all begins to unravel isn't it and it's yeah. that kind of like suing someone that's already, well, it's got nothing, that's already needy. Yeah, how do you take something from mental somebody who has health nothing, problems? You know? Like, what is the benefit to anybody in that? And like, I kind of, I, I kind of wished that Diane could like write to the mum and dad of the kid with the burns, which is obviously awful, and be like, look, this is my situation. Like, try and understand. My son is like really struggling. I mean, I'm sure the money would be useful to pay for his treatment, but I can't afford it. I don't have any insurance. What good is going to come of this? Yeah, I I felt it was quite indifferent to the arson situation, which I felt quite uncomfortable as well. Your son is yeah has caused some yeah. serious injury to someone, and it's like see that it doesn't get spoken about from the beginning until the yeah. moment the papers are yeah. served to her. It's awful. But then, like from anyway, Diane's perspective, like she hasn't done it. The problems that Steve's got are not something that she's built into him as part of her upbringing. I don't think. No. And so yeah, but it must be really hard for her because he's done this terrible thing and it's caused this these terrible repercussions on this other kid, but she didn't do it and she's got to just deal with the fallout from it and it's going to affect her life forever potentially, but sure. it wasn't her. It's the equivalent of, you know, you have a lot of moms feeling very bad for bringing, you know, psychopaths and like serial killers to life where they feel like a sense yeah. of responsibility because it's their son. And the thing is, what we, what and we, the, you have a responsibility to how you raise your, like your kids in a way. I'm not saying off yeah. the off the back of what you said there, Simon, and what, again, what we don't see is that just because Steve is gone doesn't mean that lawsuit is gone. Like Di's life is still That's going true. to go to That's shit. True. For me, it was just further tension for her to deal with, and it was just mm. becoming more and more overwhelming. Just all this stuff racking up. Untenable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I think is the main takeaway of the film that love and fear can coexist at the same Mm. time and just because you experience both that doesn't mean that you can live with them uh both at the same time so i I don't want to say it is okay to be able to say enough is enough but that's what happened in this case which is goes back to us not condemning 
Diane in a way, because I feel like deep down under the right circumstances, we can all turn into Diane and we kind of owe it to the fact that we are all human, right? I think that's that's what the film does that really well, is that you could, any person from any family could see themselves and what's happening. It's a very real story. The film does a good job of giving you empathy for somebody mm. in that situation. You need to keep watching and being exposed to material like that to remind you of the shit some people are having to go through that wasn't of their making. And she's just been shoved into this situation. Her, what, has her husband died? Yeah. yeah the kid's lot. got these mental health issues and she's just trying to survive. Hard survive, exactly. Well, survive is the right word, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Self-preservation. Yeah. Okay. We saw the ending, you guys. We got there. I think. <laughs> again. Wait, so, <laughs> Once so again. who's saying that he dies and who's saying that he survives? I think he's died, yeah. I agree. Yeah, same. Oh, okay. I thought you were lining that up to say. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. Yeah. I've cool. listened to the evidence and I've decided. <laughs> this is why the I'm ending sorry, has everyone. been solved. There we go. Um, cool. If you made it this far, we would love for you to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. And if you're a new listener, give our previous episodes a listen as well and let us know what you think. And if you really like what you just listened, give us a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That could be your random act of kindness for the day. We will be back in two weeks with the one and only... Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you soon. Did you like it? Did you like that? Did I like it? I loved it. I I had no idea you could milk a cat. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.